I want to begin this morning with an illustration, and I do so with this proviso that this illustration is not a Faulkner University versus Fried Hardman University sort of illustration. Each school has their own strengths and virtues to commend them. It's just that my experience, my undergraduate work, of course, was at Fried Hardman College. And so I began with this illustration. One of the things that most impressed me when I first started at Fried Hardman was Old Chapel Hall. And anyone who has gone to Fried Hardman and has visited Old Chapel Hall knows that to put the word old in front of Chapel Hall is a bit redundant, that uh, it was a place of great antiquity. And that's where we actually had chapel for my freshman and sophomore years. And I'm here to tell you that Chapel Hall was not just old, it smelled old. It, it had a high ceiling, uh, hard wooden seats with the curved backs, you know what I'm talking about, that folded and, and uh, huge windows that went almost from the floor to the ceiling. It also had steam-heated radiators that popped and hissed during the wintertime. It hard, had hardwood floors that were, uh, I think, somewhere during the Civil War is when they were put in. But uh, they creaked, and so there was, there was no sneaking out of chapel for anything. First time I remember walking into Chapel Hall, I, I, I hate to over-dramatize and overstate, but it was a feeling almost of sanctity. It was almost like it was, it was a holy place. And I, I realized that a large part of that due, was due to its historical uh, setting and because of the fact that it had seen so many people pass through those doors and had experienced so many things. And it wasn't just the black and white portraits of former college presidents and gospel preachers who had long been dead that were hanging around the wall. The portraits, that is, not the preachers and the presidents. I wanted to make that perfectly clear. But, but what it was, was, was that, that feeling of history, that like the souls of generations of past students were somehow still lurking about, and, and even the tunes and the words of the songs of faith that they sang were somehow embedded in those old seats and in the woodwork of that place. I remember when I walked up the steps into Chapel Hall for the very first time, I almost felt the presence of God. It, it seemed as if that that place had been there for such a long time and and that God had been living in that place for a long, long, long time. That, that was my feeling. I'm not saying that was the case, but I'm saying that that's how I felt. The faith that we talked about there and that we sang about there was an old faith, and perhaps it creaked just a little bit too. I just know that we were not trying to be trendy with our faith. We didn't think that faith was supposed to be trendy. In fact, I didn't hear the expressions felt needs or user-friendly until many, many years later in my ministry. Our faith was tied to something old, and I'm talking about something very old, even older than history itself. And then I think back to the congregations where I grew up, and I, I suppose there were a lot of things in those congregations that we did not talk about that we should have. I didn't hear much about how the Holy Spirit operated in the life of a Christian when I was growing up in, in that North Georgia congregation. I do remember hearing lessons about how the Holy Spirit did not operate in a Christian's life. But the one thing we did talk about was the cross. We not only talked about the cross, but we sang about it. We sang many of the same songs that Art led us in this morning. And when the communion time came, that was, of course, the focal point of why we were there. 
and we did not move as rapidly as possible from the cross to the resurrection, I remember we took to some pains and some time to linger on the cross. Because somehow we knew that the cross was, was the really tough part of the gospel message. As we stated just a couple of weeks ago, the cross showed God's love for lost mankind to be a bloody love. And, and, and some people find that distasteful to think about or even to talk about. But by comparison, the resurrection, you know, that's, that's a piece of cake. I don't mean to say that to be spurious, but I do say that, that to under, for, helped us to understand that it's really easy to think about the fact that Jesus came forth from that tomb on Sunday morning. That's the victorious part of it. But it's much more difficult to think about Jesus hanging on that old rugged cross. I wonder if you've ever thought about the fact that every word and every action and every historical event that's recorded by inspiration in the Bible loses all of its significance and all of its spiritual relevance apart from the cross. The cross is what gives everything that we do and are and believe as Christians its meaning. And, and we need to ponder that from time to time. We need to think about that, I think, on a regular basis. But there are modern religious groups, many of them in their frantic obsession with increasing their numbers and their contribution, who, regardless of, of whether they ever save anyone's soul or not, are, are responding to the buttons that have been pushed by the people in the pews, who are crying to those men, preach to us smooth things, not hard things. Tell us how, what nice folks we are and remind us that, that God loves us no matter how we choose to live. We're hearing that, sadly, even sometimes in, in our churches. And the response has, has been to become more felt-needs-oriented and to become more user-friendly. In the second place, I submit that the message of the cross is foundational. Paul makes that abundantly clear in the passage that was just read in your hearing a moment ago from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 through 4. It is the death, the burial, and the resurrection. That is the three points of foundation upon which our faith rests. And I wonder if modern religious leaders are so busy scratching where everybody itches that they've lost sight of, of proclaiming the, the fundamental and the essential message of the cross. I'm just old-fashioned enough to believe that, that telling people that the cross is where Jesus died a, a horrific death to save us from eternal destruction, that that is a spiritually relevant message. And it's one that we all need to be reminded of on a regular basis. And while I'm on that point, let me say this. If I have failed to do that from this pulpit on a regular basis, I am deeply sorry. And I repent. But we have a tendency to shy away from the cross for some reasons that we've talked about in recent weeks. Because it's ugly. It's brutal. It's sickening even. It's horrifying to think about the the most horrendous way that man has ever invented for another person to die and in our politically correct, refined taste or are repulsed by it. Truthfully, we're living in a world and even in our own society that just doesn't like the cross very much and would prefer that God had found a more civil way to bring forgiveness to lost mankind. When I assemble, as we're doing this morning, with other followers of Jesus Christ, I don't want to be entertained by a stand-up comedian. I don't want to be entertained by a live band or even to watch a video. I'll tell you what I want. I want to be confronted with a cross. And, and, and how that, that role that I played in making that cross absolutely necessary. 
I want to see God die for my sins. And I need to experience his, his pain in order to be able to really feel the full extent and the power of his love. And if I don't understand the cross, then I'll never understand just how very much God loved each one of us. And I need to fall on my knees and confess my sins and cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Because if we come to understand fully, appreciate the message of the cross, that's where it will bring us, folks. It will not bring us to a pep rally, although we can be, obviously, enthusiastic about our religion and should be. But when we worship God, it calls us home. And all of us should stand and kneel then at the foot of the cross in recognition of the awesome thing that God has done for us even and especially when we did not deserve it. I get a little tired of hearing that what God really wants is for people to feel good about themselves. And I think what we all need most is just to get sick to death of ourselves and to start feeling good about the God who can heal us and who can remedy our sin situation. And of course, I know all there is, uh, well, all that I've read about healthy self-image. And if you've heard me preach, you know that I've preached on that issue from time to time. And I've talked about how important it is for us to have a healthy self-image. Again, not the way the world defines it, but the way the Bible does. And and how important it is that we don't leave services every Sunday feeling like we've been pistol whipped. I understand that. And that informs my preaching, or at least I hope that it does. But I also know that, folks, if if we're not brought face to face with our own sinfulness from time to time, we'll grow spiritually complacent. And we'll never grow or mature simply because we've never seen the need to. Sometimes, and I stress sometimes, I want to hear a real good Bible sermon about sin and about guilt and about God's final judgment just to be able to get things in proper perspective again. Sometimes I need to be scared to death, and I mean scared enough to die to myself and my sins when I think about the implications of of eternal destruction and what it means to be eternally separated from a God who has done nothing except love me. But I also want, and I I think I also need to experience on the same hand wonder and, and, and beauty and majesty and glory. As I watch that holy city, that new Jerusalem, with 12 gates, each one of them made out of a single pearl, and the river of the water of life that runs through the middle of that city as it comes down from heaven, dressed like a bride, adorned for her bridegroom. You may recall that it was in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 19, where Paul writes this to the congregation at Corinth. He says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are in the process of dying. But to us who are in the process of being saved, it is, please don't miss this, it is the power of God. The Jews demand a miraculous sign, the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we practice Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, foolishness to the Gentiles, But to those who God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power and the wisdom of God. There it is, black ink on white paper. God has told us that the real power, in fact, the only power in our lives, comes from the message of the cross. And if there is any hope at all, 
And us growing up in Christ and becoming more like him and being transformed into his image more and more each day, the only way that we're going to be empowered to do that is by keeping the message of the cross first and foremost before our minds and in our lives. In the third place, I would suggest that the message of the cross is also something that can and will transform us. The power of the cross. I've made this reference a number of times during this year, and I'm not talking about specifically in regards to the pandemic. I'm talking specifically and have been talking and addressing the matter of the social unrest the hatred that was even referenced this morning that we're, we're seeing across our land and even around the world. And I've suggested for your consideration that the only thing that will remedy that is, is the power of Jesus Christ in the lives and in the hearts of people. Social reform will not do it. But the power and the message of the cross can and will. So we need to be reminded periodically that the message of the cross is as we have just read, God's power not only to forgive us but to transform and, and to purify and sanctify and motivate us and empower us to overcome both sin and Satan. And I'm not just talking about the folks who are rioting in the streets. I'm not talking about the folks who are burning buildings in the name of any one cause or the other. I'm talking about how we need to be empowered to overcome sin and Satan in our own lives. Before we ever look at converting the world, we've got to make sure that our own lives have been truly converted and that what we're following is the message of the cross. I've said this in a different kind of way, but I want to return to it. In the congregations where I grew up, we didn't talk very much, in fact, nothing at all about managing our finances or conquering our addictions or breaking free of codependency. We didn't talk about joining grief management support groups, about jazzercise programs, Cognitive distortions, spiritual dyslexia, or here's a new one for you, sermon attention deficit disorder. We talked about the message of the cross. Not that there's anything wrong with those other things that I just mentioned in proper measure. But I'm saying that those things are not the focus of the gospel of the cross. And I'm also saying that the solution to every human problem and every human need is tied directly to that old rugged cross. Because the cross, listen carefully please, the cross is the ultimate symbol of self-denial. And if we can keep the cross and the message of the cross in our minds, in fact in the forefront of our minds each and every day that we live, we'll come to understand that Jesus not only died and shed his blood so that we'd have something to do on a Sunday morning when we gather around this table. That hopefully, eventually, it will seek in. That if Jesus so denied himself, the very essence of his life, that he could have, as we talked about last Sunday, he could have called down legions of angels to come and carry him away from that situation, from that death. But he did not. And that calls upon each of us to live lives also of self-denial. You see, as disciples of Jesus, it's not our job to, to make the message of the cross relevant to our culture. I, I don't think that's a part of our job description at all. Because doing that m means that we're trying to make the cross make sense 
if you understand where I'm going with that, to, to explain it in such a way that the cross is no longer foolishness. And, and, and I think if we do that, that that would within itself be spiritually counterproductive. The message of the cross stands in stark contrast to culture. And, and that's what gives it its power and, and makes it appealing to the spiritual side of us. If the message of our culture that we hear from our pulpits is simply a, a refined and an edited media version of the politically correct that idea that, that God loves us all unconditionally, that grace will save us no matter how we live, the problem I have with that is that there is no confession in that. There is no repentance, no place for repentance in that. There is no new birth, and there is no salvation in it. I see our job as disciples of Jesus as showing the world that the message of the cross has empowered us to live calm and, and, and joyful and, and kind and meaningful and selfless and hope-filled lives. And all of that is in the midst of a self-focused, immoral an ungodly culture. Mark mentioned that this morning already. The darker the world in which we live, the brighter our lights should shine. People should notice that we not only live, but we even think and talk differently than most people in our culture. We're, we're living in a culture that is, has regressed into a, a dark ages kind of primitivism by, by justifying the, among other things, deliberate premeditated murder of babies while they're still in a mother's womb. And by saying it's all right for people of the same sex to marry one another, that's where we are in this world. And we sit at home and we commiserate that fact, or I hope we do, and we pray about it and we cry about it. And the only answer to it is the message of the cross. We've got to get it out. We've got to help this whole world understand that only when we appreciate what Jesus did for us that we can never do for ourselves will the world be transformed. Because the cross is God's answer to the problem of sin. But we first have to collectively, and I mean as a church, not just as a world, to begin to see sin as a problem. And that also means that Jesus died for the ungodly. But you know, most folks don't want to admit that they're in that much trouble. You see, the word ungodly seems a little strong to their sensibilities. We may be dysfunctional. We may have a few cognitive distortions and a few addictions, but I mean, who doesn't, right? And we can have a great therapist on staff. We can have an accepting support group. We can attend PTA meetings and support the Girl Scouts. And we can coach Little League. And we may even go to church as, as a part of our busy week, at least on Easter and Christmas. And basically, we're good people. And we're beginning, and I mean really beginning, to start to believe in ourselves. But in that limited and worldly sense, believing in ourselves, that's not what we need. Believing in ourselves, in fact, can be an insult to grace. And it's a blasphemy to the cross for the simple reason that God wants us to come in our spiritual lives to believe in that cross and to believe in himself. There's something fundamentally wrong, folks, with the human race. The message of the cross bears a simple and direct message to, to every culture and every generation, and that is at the essence of it. There is something wrong with the human race.
Sin has so defiled us and distorted our spiritual vision that we can't see anymore. And I'm afraid sometimes that the church is being so influenced by culture and by the world that we're losing our spiritual vision as well. So wrapped up in the lies and the deceit and the immorality that floods this society, so filled with pride and self-focus that no amount of therapy could ever unravel us. But that's not the only answer to it. The answer is to kneel at the foot of the cross. Finally, I submit that the message of the cross makes a simple and and consistent demand. There are some, I know, who stand in pulpits that would say that if I have embraced the message of the cross, there are no demands. Just let go and let God. He'll do it all for you. That's not what I read in Scripture. The message of the cross does, in fact, make a simple, consistent demand. It rings from our hearts and from our lips this simple but profound confession. I have sinned. It's for a reason that you find that string of three words so seldom in Scripture. I believe only three times. That you'll find the words in Scripture, I have sinned. And the hard reality of that fact comes home to every person who has the opportunity to hear that message. That it was was my sins that put Jesus on that tree. Not the sins of the world, not the sins of American culture. It was me who allowed Jesus to be nailed to that cross. And please think about this and think about it long and hard. We are not in a relationship with God simply because we think we are or even because we feel that we are. Scripture says that we're in a relationship with God only, only when we respond to the demands of the cross. And Jesus surrendered his will in order to do God's will. That's what I meant a moment ago about self-denial. And when he died on that old rugged cross, there there isn't any image that we can think of of self-denial that is any clearer than that and more profound than that. And I think even today, many people who are not religious at all, when they think of the ultimate demonstration of self-denial, of thinking of others, they, they themselves go to the cross and think of Jesus dying there, whether they believe in him as the Messiah or not. But we come to understand, if, if we listen consistently and closely enough, and we begin to live the message of the cross, that we have to surrender our will. In order to do God's will, when we die to ourselves, when we are buried in baptism so that we, just like Jesus, can be resurrected to start to live in this newly created life that God has made possible for every one of us. The wisdom of the message of the cross runs contrary to human wisdom. I think we've established that already in this lesson. The cross is never the obvious solution to our problem simply because it teaches us that in agreeing to die, only then can we find real life. And here's the really hard part of all of this. And you may be thinking, I thought that you got to that 20 minutes ago. But here's the really hard part of all of this. Dying to ourselves means that we have to admit that we are the problem, not the person we're married to. Not the person who happens to be in the White House at the time. Not the educational system. Not society at large. The problem is us. And the sooner we admit that, the sooner I think that we are on the road 
to spiritual recovery. Jesus, think about this if you will. Jesus' death on the cross makes forgiveness easy for God. And here's what I mean by that. And I don't mean to underplay the word easy there. That is, he, he never has to struggle with, well, does the blood of Jesus have the power to, to wash away anybody's sins, no matter how bad they are. God ne- never has to struggle with that conundrum. And so in that sense, it's easy for God. The price has already been paid. He has already picked up the coupon book and paid the ultimate price, the full price for every one of us. There's only one problem with sin, that the cross cannot redeem. And that's the pride that refuses to accept it. So if the message of the cross is beginning to diminish once we become disciples, then I guess being a disciple is not much different from being a Pharisee, at least as I find them described in Scripture. We're back to trying to save ourselves by doing, being a good person and, and doing enough good deeds. Jesus tried to correct that problem among the Pharisees when he walked this earth, and you know about that. You can read Matthew 23 just like I can. And you know how the Pharisees responded. They killed him for his effort. That brings us full circle. The message of the cross is essentially a message of grace. And grace not only saves us initially, God's grace saves us every single day. The problem with sin that brings us to the cross does not magically go away the day after we get out of the baptistry after our conversion. You probably noticed that if you're a child of God this morning. Your, your, your difficulties, the, the decisions that you had to make spiritually, they did not magically just disappear after you became a Christian. So living under grace means that we live every day, moment by moment, under the life-changing power of the cross. A power that brings us joy and peace and forgiveness and sanctification. And this is really important. By the power of Christ's own blood, he forgives us and saves us even before we take a bath. Even before we fix ourselves up. Even before we comb our hair and get our makeup on. Before we've made things right. Before we've learned our lesson. Before we had to straighten a few things out in order to make our lives at least on the outside a little more presentable. Scripture says that while we were yet sinners, before we even knew that we needed it. Jesus Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, he died for us. And that same Jesus said, and I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto myself. And that's what I wanted us to do this morning, to just lift up Christ. And if you want and have decided that you will follow him starting today, we bid you come while we stand and while we sing.